BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, November 28th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook at slash Podcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. Hey listeners, help Inquiring Minds stay free to download by completing this short anonymous survey. It'll take no more than five minutes and your answers will help match our show with advertisers that best fit the sensibilities of our podcast and its listeners like you. Listeners who complete the survey will be entered in an ongoing monthly raffle to win a $100 Amazon gift card. We promise not to share or sell your email address and we won't send you email unless you win. So please go to podsurvey.com slash minds. That's podsurvey.com slash M-I-N-D-S to take our survey and get a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Today's episode is sponsored by MailRoot, the leading cloud service for email protection since 1997. MailRoot doesn't think you should waste your time and resources by accepting a bunch of garbage on your mail server. So with MailRoot, there's no hardware, no software, nothing to install or maintain. MailRoot simply receives your mail, sorts it, and delivers only clean email to your mail server. To remove spam from your life for good, go to MailRoot.net slash Minds for a free trial and 10% off for the lifetime of your account. That's MailRoot.net slash M-I-N-D-S. This is the second installment of our three-part series investigating our genetic code, what we've learned already, what we need to know now that scientists know that the public maybe doesn't, and of course, what is the future of DNA research. In this second episode, I interviewed writer Christine Keneally. She's an award-winning journalist, and she's written for The New York Times, The New Yorker, Slate, Time Magazine, and many other publications. She's author of The First Word, The Search for the Origins of Language, and now just out, her latest book is called The Invisible History of the Human Race, How DNA and History Shape Our Identities and Our Futures. At this time of year, as we all sit down and eat with friends and family, there are two topics of great importance to us. One, of course, is our family. And so that's what I'll investigate with Christine Keneally in the main interview on this show. But the second part is our food. And so to talk about food, I brought on again our guest host, Cynthia Graber, who's a science reporter and co-host of Gastropod, a podcast that explores the science and history of food. And she is also going to be doing the main interviews for two out of the three episodes in this three-part series on our genetic code. Cynthia Graber, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. So 
Before we get into uh, talking a little bit more about food, I just wanted to tell you a little bit more about today's main interview with Christine Keneally. I was really interested in exploring whether it's still accurate for us to say that we share 50% of our DNA with our parents, say, or our siblings, because, of course, we share so much more of our DNA with amoebas. <laughs> and so is it just a, you know, is it a semantic thing, how we talk about this, you know, the origins of our DNA, where our actual chromosomes come from, versus where they've evolved from? And, you know, is this still, is there any reason we should be rethinking the way we talk about our genetic code? So uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. I think it's a really interesting topic. And I love the way you framed it, that it's this you know, how connected are we to our family? What does it mean in terms of DNA? There's a story that I did that actually aired on Gastropod a couple of weeks ago, um, which was about fungus, about fungi, and how they, um, how, how breeding fungi can lead to increases in, in food and in yield in, in the field. And it's a fascinating story. But one of the things I loved when I spoke to the geneticist who's been working with these fungi is he said that they're more distinct from one another, you know, a particular fungi that you might find from another kind that's exactly the same kind of mycorrhizal fungi than we are from some of our closest relatives, say chimpanzees. And just the idea that we have something that we think of as monolithic, but yet it's more genetically, you know, there are more genetic differences there than we are from something we think of as totally different from us, kind of twists your mind a little bit in terms of this whole DNA question. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and that's us and the chimpanzees, you know, what about us and, you know, my first cousin? Right. <laughs> There's a lot of differences there, too. And yet, you know, presumably, we share even more genetic material. So it's a fascinating topic for me. And one of the things that I've become more and more fascinated by, though, is this notion, of course, that you know, the way that our genes are expressed changes over our lifetime, you know, now that we know about epigenetics and, and all the effects that environment and our aging has on the actual way in which the code is being expressed. It's really fascinating. So we don't, you know, although a lot of us still think of DNA as a static thing, um, that's not really how it behaves. So when I asked Christine Keneally about this, this is what she had to say. Over the course of a lifetime, life treats you differently and your genome responds to that. It's not just sort of your body and your mind that responds, but your genome responds to the ways that you move throughout your life. Your genome responds to the kind of food that you eat. It responds to the world in which you live. So Cynthia, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's a really interesting concept. It, it, there's so much more that's been coming out these days about epigenetics and the idea that the way that our genome is expressed changes. And there are so many other kind of external impacts or things that happen or things that kind of change the way that our genome is expressed over the course of our lifetime that can have an impact down generations even. It's just a kind of mind boggling. Yeah, so there used to be this fear of studying the genetic basis of any complicated behavior because people could take that information and run with it in the wrong direction, right? The way Nazi Germany did uh, during the Second World War and the way people sometimes see biological determinism. And I think now, if you're at all knowledgeable about genetics, that just doesn't make any sense at all because you know the 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 way the genes are expressed is going to change depending on a person's experience depending on what they're going through depending on so many different factors that you know the it's in you know in some ways what we do in terms of the environment that we put ourselves in can have a larger effect on the way that our genes uh, express themselves than who were we who, where we were born and who were our parents 
We think of the genome, you know, I think there's been this idea that the genome is this code, and it's a kind of code in stone. And once you get it, then it gets written and something happens. And I think that the more we learn, the more we realize we still have to learn. And that's one of the big questions that it's it's not that simple. Yes, maybe it's more like an etched sketch. <laughs> <laughs> I love that image. So that'll be our interview for today. But before we get there, of course, it is the we've kicked off the holiday season. And for a lot of us, in, in, in not only is it about family, but it's also about food. Uh, so what's been on your mind this week, uh, Cynthia? So as I mentioned, you know, Gastropod covers the science and history of food. And so I'm kind of always looking at what's going on in that world and what studies are coming out. And there was a study that I loved that was published in the journal Science just recently. And it, it looks at the area around the Tibetan Plateau. It's really high. It's about 3,000 meters, about 9,000 feet. It's called the roof of the world. And humans have lived there, ancient humans, since about maybe 20,000 years ago. But it was just these kind of brief settlements, maybe, you know, a hunting lodge or something. They'd go up. They might, you know, kind of search for their game. They'd come back down. They couldn't live at heights like that. And then at about 5,000 years ago or so, it's about, I think, 5,200 years ago, something changed. And all of a sudden, you start to see some settlements, some permanent settlements being made kind of creeping up higher and higher into the region. And scientists wanted to know, well, what happened? What changed that allowed humans to suddenly live in these regions? So they investigated 53 different sites, and they kind of studied all the remains there, animal and plant remains and so on. And what they found was that in the lower sites that started at about 5,200 years ago, there were the people there were eating mostly millet, which is from the region. But at about 3,600 years ago, they finally were able to reach those heights at about 3,000 meters high. And what happened at exactly the same time was that barley that had been domesticated in the Fertile Crescent made its way to the Tibetan Plateau. There was this kind of exchange of food. And once the barley reached there, barley was more frost-tolerant and it had a longer growing season. So once those in the region of the Tibetan Plateau had access to this new crop, they could grow barley and it was resistant to frost and they could grow it for longer. Finally, they could start settling high up in the roof of the world. So I just love this image that it takes this kind of cross-cultural exchange of foods to allow these kind of ancient human settlements. It's, that's an, a really an amazing story. And, you know, it really ties into the interview for today because a lot of the uh, a lot of Christine Keneally's book is about how DNA can help solve some of the historical puzzles that are still out there, you know, by tracking people's um, migration patterns and where they lived and where they didn't live on the basis of their DNA. Um, and it, it also is a personally interesting to me because um, a number, a couple of years ago, my husband and I actually trekked to the base camp of Mount Everest. Um, and we ate a lot of barley. And I wish I'd known this going in because I think I would have approached the, those meals very differently. You know, when you're up at that high altitude, it's not a good idea to eat high protein foods because, you know, then your body is spending all this energy digesting it. And, you know, you get these, um, these, these swings. And what you really want is, you know, just a, a very low burn, essentially, in your metabolism. And so you eat a lot of carbohydrates. But barley, of course, is one that's more nutritious than, you know, some, some of the other ones. I <laughs> had no rice. idea. I love that story. That's yeah. great. That's great. <laughs> I'll remember that next time I, uh, if I find myself up in that region. <laughs> yeah. So, and also, you know, barley is a great food for the holidays. That's true. <laughs> Very healthy. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview of Christine Keneally.
This episode is sponsored by MailRoot, who, I've been told, handles email for ACM, the Association of Computing Machinery, which is probably a pretty big deal. I mean, ACM is the largest organization dedicated to computer science in the world, and MailRoot is who they trust to deliver their mail. So, who is MailRoot? Well, they started in 1997 as an email filtering company called FrontBridge, and then Microsoft bought them out and named it Forefront. So... Often, the founders get asked, well, why didn't you just take the Microsoft money and go on a permanent vacation? Well, MailRoot's founder believed that he could still improve on the technology he'd built and help everyone from single users to large corporations. So how does MailRoot actually help with email management? We all know that spam, viruses, and bounced mail are a hassle to deal with. MailRoot doesn't think you should waste your time and resources by accepting a bunch of garbage on your mail server. So here's the deal. With MailRoot, there's no hardware or software to install or maintain. MailRoot simply receives your mail, sorts it, and delivers only clean email to your mail server. To remove spam from your life for good, go to MailRoot.net slash minds for a free trial and 10% off for the lifetime of your account. This episode is also sponsored by Bombas. Bombas are athletic leisure socks, re-engineered to look better, feel better, and perform better with a mission to help those in need. Socks are the number one most requested clothing item at homeless shelters, and Bombas was founded to help solve that problem. One pair purchased means one pair donated. Bombas has donated more than 150,000 pairs of socks to those in need since launching in October of 2013. Bombas spent two years on research and development prior to launch and came up with seven substantial improvements to the athletic sock to make sure they feel good and perform well. So here are just a couple of features of their socks. Their calf socks use a stay-up technology. It's so annoying when calf socks, you know, bunch down. Bombas stay up. They're not too tight and they don't slip down. And their ankle socks have a blister tab, a tiny ankle cushion that sits directly where your shoe hits your leg to prevent painful rubbing and chafing. That is an annoying thing about ankle socks. Bombas are purpose-built for athletes and engineered for extreme comfort. So go to bombas.com slash minds. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash minds. Use promo code minds and you'll get 10% off any order. Christine Keneally, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much, Indre. I'm so excited to talk to you about families and our DNA at a time when many of us are actually sitting down across the table from some primates that share a lot of our (laughs) DNA um, that are our relatives. And of course, these experiences are often mixed. It's great to see family, but you know, we're always often surprised at how we are related to some people that are very different from us. Um, So I wanted to start off first by let's talk a little bit about how what it means that we share DNA with our parents and our relatives when we also share DNA with chimpanzees and mushrooms. So, you know, (laughs) when we talk about you get 50% of your DNA from your mom and 50% from dad, what does that really mean when we also share a lot of our DNA with all kinds of other life organisms on earth? Right, absolutely. Um, so, and let me just say first, I mean, I, I share that sense of wonder that you have, this idea that particularly, I guess, around the Thanksgiving table with brothers and sisters, you know, when you share, you know, 50% of your DNA with your sibling, you know, what does that actually mean? You can be so alike and so different at the same time. And I think the ways that we've talked about this before we got a bit more sophisticated about DNA, we tended to want to 
find out if we were more different than the same or more same than different. And in fact, we're both at the same time. And as far as chimpanzees are concerned and bonobos, who were also very closely related to, it, it really depends, I guess, almost on the level of zoom that you're taking on the genome. We are extremely closely related to chimpanzees. We share overwhelmingly the same DNA. But there are these very crucial differences, um, which, which mean the differences between a human being and a chimpanzee. Um, these are just when you take the genome as a whole these are just very small percentages but the genome essentially is composed of so many tiny bits um, some of which are very meaningful some of which seem to just sort of sit around and maybe tell us something but don't do anything um, that when you start zooming in on those tiny bits that's when you can find you know the differences as well it may be a single marker in a single gene that has quite serious consequences for something like the shape of one's body um, and then when you take human beings and you line up all the human groups together or not actually that you can line them up together when you take all human groups and you sort of you look at them at the same time overwhelmingly all human beings all human individuals are the same genetically but in these tiny gaps where we're different where you have you know a few markers here and there or maybe a few hundred or thousand markers here and there those markers can tell us something about not just our health not just our individual traits but but the history of the human race as well it's, it always amazes me when we, you know, people talk about, hey, you know, here's my sibling, we share half of our DNA. And then they talk about a stranger and they say, I don't share any DNA with that stranger. Right. I mean, that seems really misplaced to me uh, because, of course, you actually share the vast majority of your DNA with that stranger. And yet, you know, we just don't conceptualize it that way. And so I guess I, I still want to try to get at this question of, if that, you know, how is it that our relatives are different from us? It's just this little uh, bit, I guess, that makes us different from each other. But is that somehow quantifiable? And is it is it really correct to say that, you know, if because I share 50% of my DNA with my brother, um, that makes me, you know, I, 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 twice as likely to sort of share some of the same things with him as I do with someone with whom I share I have, who's not a blood relative. Right, right. Well, so, so let's go back to the chimpanzees to start. When, you, when you're talking about chimpanzees and humans, you, you know, you're looking at the genome overall. You're looking at all the different genes that we have in common. Um, in particular, and we have many, many, many genes in common. When you're comparing a stranger on the street with, with whom you're right, you are sort of overwhelmingly genetically identical to, almost identical to versus your brother or your sister. I guess the difference is you're just, you're just really, um, you're referencing the source of your genetic material. So when you're comparing yourself with your sibling, you know, you basically got half of your DNA from your mom, basically half of your DNA from your dad. And, you know, it all got shuffled up as it came down to you. And, you know, and that those two packages together make you who you are. When you talk about your sibling, they went through the same process. They got half of the DNA from their mom, half the DNA from their dad. And it's more or less, it's probably about half the same. Um, so that's a little bit different when you're talking about a stranger on the street. They're not very comparable, I guess, when people talk about those things. But but I think when you go back to the mums and the dads, that's probably, that might help people make sense of it. 
Yeah, so this is this episode I should I should um, tell you, I've already told my, our listeners, this is the second in a three part series that we're doing where we're trying to reexamine what it means, uh, what our genome means and what we know now that we didn't know a few decades ago and how that's changing the way that we think about our DNA. And so I think this is one way in which I think, in, in you know, in my opinion, we should start to change the way we think about how related we are to each other. Um, because it doesn't make so much sense anymore to say, you know, we we are so closely related to our immediate family members and then not at all related to the other pe- members of our species. Right. And one of the reasons that I, I feel that we have the, the information that has come up in the last few decades that might change this viewpoint is that now we understand that actually our DNA changes within our own lifetime. Which I think people t- kind of didn't consider, but you know, for a long time it was thought DNA is immutable. It's this thing that you are born with and that you die with. And yet, now that we know um, about epigenetics and how gene expression can change and genes can get turned on and off at different times of life, uh, the DNA that we die with is can be, I mean, can be quite different from the DNA with which we are born. Is that something that? you've thought about or or have encountered in terms of the way that you've talked to these geneticists? Right. So the one thing that I I really, and I'm not sure that I would talk about DNA changing over the course of a lifetime, but that the expression of your DNA changes over the course of your lifetime. Um, And that epigenetics is just one of the ways that can control or change or alter that expression. Um, But just your basic genetic program is for genes to be turned on and off throughout the course of the day and the month and at different stages of development. And one of the things that really was so fascinating to me, um, you know, I just looked at twins just a little bit throughout the book and there's been a lot of research now that shows that twins who, you know, are effectively genetically identical. I mean, as we get cleverer at looking at the genome, we can certainly find ways sometimes, even which apparently identical twins have tiny genetic differences between them, but, you know, they're really not very significant at all. But, you know, over the course of a lifetime, life treats you differently and your genome responds to that. It's not just sort of your body and your mind that responds, but your genome responds to the ways that you move throughout your life. Your genome responds to the kind of food that you eat. It responds to the world in which you live. So people notice that as twins get older and older, they start to look more different from each other. Um, I've looked at studies or I've read about studies where um, it shows that trauma can have a pretty significant impact on the genome. And, and I think you can see that sometimes in the faces of twins, one of whom has had a fairly relaxed life, but another of whom has been through some kind of trauma, you know, in the most basic way that we all really understand, you know, they may wear it on their face and the genome may be implicated in that. So in a way that also completely turns around the question of biological determinism, because you know, this idea that we can't, we can't control the way that genetics affect our fate. And yet, in some ways, it's our fate that controls the way our genetics uh, are expressed. Is that, is that a, a way that people are thinking about it now? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think, I think what you're, what you're capturing there is basically the dynamism and the, the circuit between the genome and the environment that, that really shapes who we are. I mean, I think to me, one of the revelations of reporting this book was discovering that DNA affects us along this really long spectrum. And at one end, 
it can be fate. It can be fateful. It can be deterministic. You have genes that may result in a disorder that can affect you in childhood or adulthood and that may kill you, that may result in your death. And until we've actually worked out how to get in there and to change those genes or to change the effect of those genes further downstream, it's as fateful and deterministic as we have always feared. But the large majority of the genome, the ways in which it affects us, have to do much more with probability and with chance. And that's where the environment comes in. That's where choices that we make come in. Um, and, and what you get, particularly in terms of, I guess, health effects, is you get the, the genome affecting you in ways that could be thought about as risk. You know, whether you uh, have high risk for something, whether you are low risk compared to the average person for something. And so we've also talked about sort of how we know about the genome and how we can then use the information now in the future to, uh, you know, help cure diseases and so on. And for I think for a lot of lay people, the idea that we feel like we know the, what, exactly what the human genome looks like, you know, we, we, the, the headlines were a number of decades ago already, that we've sequenced the human genome. Um, but in fact, that's not really the case, right? E especially if the the way that the human genome is expressed changes even within a one person's lifetime. So what is the state of the art now in terms of the understanding by geneticists of, of how much do we really know? Have, have we sequenced the genome in the way that the layperson understands it? Or is there still a lot of work that needs to be done? Well, you're absolutely right. When, when we sequenced the human genome um, all those years ago, it was actually just one human genome that we sequenced. And at the time, it felt like it was the human genome because that was the first time that it had actually been done. And that's what all the fanfare was about. But it was just the genome of one human being. Since then, um, I guess we've been struggling with ways to use that. People spoke about the disappointments of the Human Genome Project for many years because there was so much expectation about what it would do for us. Um, you know, really, we just needed to be a little bit patient. And, and all those riches and all those rewards are, are, are happening right now and are going to continue to happen very much so in the next few years. So, so over the last five years or so, um, a technique has been refined and implemented called uh, genome-wide association studies. So people talk about GWAS for short. And essentially what that means is we take the genomes of hundreds and maybe thousands of people and we compare them together. And it's really only in this collection of individual human genomes that we learn more about the genome, not just the genome as this collective human entity, not just um, the genome as the ways it sort of generally affects us at all, but, but really the individual genome as well. So you really only get to find out a lot more about your own personal genome when it's basically uh, being compared in a database to many, many others. So, so before GWAS, people, uh, the way researchers would go about trying to find the relationship between genes and conditions is that they would almost pick a gene on a hunch. And it was just that complicated to actually look at a gene and look at the effects of genes, that this was not a very successful thing to do. Now that we can compare thousands of people and, and also compare them 
for hundreds and thousands of places across the genome itself. We're not just looking at 10 markers in one person's genome. We're looking at hundreds and thousands of markers across hundreds of people's genomes. And so we're finding out all this information about probability and about risk. So, so there are so many ways that your health might be affected by your genome. You might find that you are predisposed to a condition that can actually be impacted by your lifestyle. So for example, type 2 diabetes. Now we know that the onset of type 2 diabetes can be affected by people's lifestyles, by what they eat and whether they exercise and how they live. And even once you have developed type 2 diabetes, the course of that disease can be affected by your lifestyle as well. So it could be an incredibly useful thing for you to personally find out that you are actually more predisposed than the average person to that particular disease. There are uh, drug responsivities. This is something that people didn't even really think about a few decades ago, but different individuals, just because of their genome, react differently to the same drugs. So when I had my genome analyzed, I found out that I was more sensitive than the average person to warfarin. Warfarin is a blood thinner, and it's given to people in situations like stroke. So this is potentially really useful information for me to have as I age. Another person may not be particularly sensitive to warfarin at all, so that that little piece of information is not really going to matter to them. Um, there are diseases and conditions that you might develop over the course of your life that might be affected by your genome um, that aren't necessarily affected by your lifestyle choices, but whose course may be affected by what you know about it. So when my husband had his genome analyzed, he found out that he had um, a relatively significant predisposition to prostate cancer. Now, we know this to be true because there are a number of men in his family in a previous generation who also developed that condition. But it just so happens that my husband is the kind of person who paid a lot more attention to that information when it came to him in the form of a report about his own genome. So, so this has had a really interesting impact on him. So what's happened is that Prior to finding this out, if he'd come across uh, a newspaper article about prostate cancer, he would just turn the page and continue on his way. But now whenever he sees something to do with that, he actually stops and he reads it. When we first got his report, just coincidentally, a few days later on the radio, there was a story about a prostate cancer researcher. So we both sat and listened to that, whereas before we probably would have ignored it. So I think this is potentially going to be really powerful for him. You know, fingers crossed he won't develop that condition and it's not something we'll have to worry about. But if he does, he'll be forearmed with all this knowledge that he's accumulating just tiny bit by tiny bit along the way. I also wonder, though, if people aren't going to become overwhelmed by all the risks that, that they have for different diseases as we find out more and more, you know, what a one person's genes can tell them about the risks, you know, the, the diseases that they might get in the future. Um, and, and that if, if this might be a fad that's kind of making some waves now, but that eventually, you know, we, we all know, for example, that eating donuts is not good for us, but that doesn't stop us from eating donuts most of the time. I mean, some of the time for sure, but a lot of us still make bad decisions knowing that they're not going to be the ones that are going to lead us to live to a hundred. And so do you see that, do you think that there's something fundamentally different about the information that we can get from our genetics that will affect behavior in ways that other recommendations haven't been able to do? 
Well, it, well, it is fundamentally different in the sense that, you know, it, it, it is what it is. It's not necessarily going to change. It, it may or may not be affected by lifestyle. It, it's a completely different source of information for us. So, so it is different in that regard. If you get your genomic information, you are going to have more information about yourself and your potential futures than you would have otherwise had. That's, that's just how it is. Whether it's going to affect people's behavior is a whole other question and a really, really interesting one. There's a huge public communications project ahead of us all in terms of filtering the many, many things that we might learn from our genome. Because you're absolutely right. I mean, there's, there's only so much time in the day. There's only so many pieces of information we can take in. I mean, I think this is the kind of problem that people faced way back when, you know, that sort of threshold, when people were realizing that cigarettes actually maybe weren't so good for your health. Um, that took many, um, many sort of public policy changes, many different ways of advertising and communicating with the public all across the world. And it's still really an ongoing project. And that's just one data point, right? Cigarettes are bad for you. This is many, many data points. Maybe we'll find ways to sort ourselves into groups so that we're more likely to reach for the kinds of information that, you know, might affect us more. You know, various companies have experimented with different ways of communicating to people. 23andMe, um, their health information service is currently suspended, but um, chances are it'll be back up and running soon. And the way they communicated to people was they, you know, they handed them the information, you know, what, what your risk is, what your predisposition is compared to the average person, you know, within your general population group. But they also associated with it. They also marked it with a star system. I, I, I can't remember exactly, but, you know, if it was four stars or, or perhaps it was five stars, it meant they were very confident about the information they gave you. If it was one star, then it meant there really hadn't been that much scientific work done on that particular condition or that particular association by then. So it was the kind of thing you could just sort of mentally bookmark but not really do anything about at that time. There's been a lot of um, hostility in the medical community about people accessing their own genetic information. And the argument is that it is actually potentially terrifying, that it is potentially life altering, that it is potentially just too shocking for people to handle. And I, and I think largely this is a really paternalistic kind of response. These are the gatekeepers of our medical information, or these are the people who have been the gatekeepers up until now, but now there are ways in which we can sort of get around those old systems and find out things that otherwise we would have had to have taken a very special test for. Now, there are very serious conditions, those very fateful ones that we were talking about before that, you know, that you shouldn't be able to get in a genetic test through the mail or over the internet. Um, but there are so many ways in which you can access this kind of information and do something about it without necessarily talking to a doctor or a counselor or some kind of specialist. People are very worried though about people overreacting to it. I think there've been a few pilot studies about the way people use this health information. And it seems to be the case that people treat it pretty much the same way they treat that information that we have about smoking, the information we have about donuts and all those other things. They actually could probably do better when they respond to it. They don't necessarily react um, or react as powerfully as they should. So there are a couple of challenges here. One is just to get the information out to people if they want it. And the other is to encourage them to do something about that information if, you know, if that's indicated.
Well, as you mentioned earlier, it's it's really hard for people to understand what it means to have a risk for something. You know, we're notoriously bad at, at understanding statistics and probabilities. And so though the, that kind of information can be very difficult to navigate. And so I wonder if we're going to enter an era in which we have to really start talking about this information in a different way. So as you mentioned before, it used to be that scientists were looking for a candidate gene for something. You know, we found the gene for X. Um, and now we look at these associations, which are much harder harder to interpret for the layperson. I guess I'm wondering if there's a way in which we can start talking about the results of these genome-wide association studies that is accurate enough and 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 close enough to the details of, of what the scientists are trying to say, but is still in, in, in a manner that the layperson can grasp and do something about. So, I mean, if, if someone told me that I share, you know, a certain percentage of um, my DNA with a group of people that are more prone to a, developing a particular cancer, for example, you know, it's still hard for me to know how that information is going, how I sh- what I should do with that information other than try to avoid the other risk factors for that cancer. And so, you know, as we get more and more information about associations with, with things that are not even necessarily health related, but maybe, you know, your ability to play a musical instrument or, or something else, um, you know, how, how do we understand that information and talk about it in such a way that we don't just get, you know, I, I see a lot of sort of media reports that, oh, we found the gene for musical ability. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not at all what the studies are reporting. So how do we, you know, stop that, the conversation from going in that direction and, yeah. and still maintain the nuance? Yeah, you know, that's, that's a challenging question. And I, I think, I think we'll be able to answer that much more fully in about 10 years time, because, because these really are pioneering days. You, absolutely. That the ways that we sort of understand what GWAS can tell us about ourselves and about our neighbors and our larger groups and even larger groups than that. So, so it is difficult right now. It is a question for right now. Absolutely. How to do that. I think the way 23andMe started to do it was, was pretty simple. Um, you know, it was, they had these nice visuals on the screen. There was a star system, you know, take this seriously. Maybe you want to talk to a doctor about this. I mean, these are just, these are how I interpreted their star systems. It's not what I said, but I, I think that was pretty straightforward. Um, maybe one of the ways in, you know, which people want to think about it that is they perhaps they want to sign up people can sign up for different layers of information too if do you want to know about the really serious conditions that you might be predisposed to check a box do you want to know about the lifestyle ones i mean there might be ways in which to divide that information up too and then i mean this is how people run their lives you know some people read magazines to do with their health all the time some people exercise a lot and they find out information about how to uh, how to optimize their performance how they can eat the right kinds of food, you know, eventually it's going to be an individual choice. But I think if we put that information out there in fairly easy to read ways, it's going to work. As far as the concern about maintaining those subtleties, I think that's going to change in the next few years. One of the people I spoke to um, was a member of the Personal Genome Project run by George Church out of Harvard, and he had his genome fully sequenced. He's one of the first people to do that. I think he was number four. And he said to me that initially when he started to look at his genome, he could see that there were all these really disturbing, potentially very distressing, maybe deleterious mutations that he had, ways in which um, there was 
ways in which he wouldn't have expected his genome to be, but that, that there was some kind of mutation, there was some kind of change, and there was a great fear that, you know, there were all these things that were wrong with his genome. And in fact, over time, he's discovered as more and more people have had their genome sequenced, you know, as we've done all of these GWAS studies, that actually what looked initially like a potentially deleterious mutation is just human variation. Didn't really mean anything at all about about how he got up in the morning and how he went through his day and how his body developed through time. So I think we're going to find that a lot of that information we're going to be able to filter out and we'll probably zoom in on things that maybe things that we can do something about. Mm-hmm. Like we all know that someday we're going to die. Yet we don't. Most of us don't obsess about it all the time. <laughs> so maybe that's a <laughs> that's way of thinking right. about it. We defer that one as long as we can. So, but there's a whole other use for this information that you talk about in your book that I hadn't even considered before I picked up your book, and this is to track social history through DNA. So, can you tell us a little bit about how that might work? So, um, so I guess we've been used to this idea for the last maybe 10 or 20 years that the human genome can tell us something about the past, that it tells us that, um, that around 60,000 years ago, a small group of humans left Africa and that they actually became the ancestors of almost all the populations that live outside Africa today and that all the groups that stayed inside in Africa are the ancestors of most African people today. It tells us that um, more recently, since we've also sequenced the Neanderthal genome, it tells us that that group spent some time with Neanderthals somewhere along the way and now most of most non-Africans have around 2 to 4% Neanderthal DNA. So we've got these huge moments and events in history that occurred that we can see in the genome. But more and more as analysis uh, becomes more and more fine-grained, we can see these much smaller moments in history and we can see the choices essentially that people made or or events that happened even in written history but that weren't written down. There's an incredible study um, done by some scientists out of Melbourne and out of Oxford they've really pushed the boundaries of how fine-grained we can get in terms of, of this kind of historic detail out of DNA. And what they did was they sampled people in Britain whose grandparents had all lived within, I think it was about 80 miles of each other, um, at least had lived very close together. And it sort of took them back to around the time of the Industrial Revolution. So the hope was that if all four grandparents had lived very closely together, then it may well be the case that those people's parents and their parents' parents had also been there for a very long time too. So sampling all this DNA across Britain, they then sorted it in such a way that they were able to see these differences between people who lived relatively very closely together, people who lived in Cornwall on the southwestern tip versus people who lived in Devon, basically just next door, people who lived in North Wales versus people who lived in South Wales. They isolated um, at least 20 different groups. And, you know, one of the first things that this tells us is that people lived in those areas for a very, very long time that, you know, way back to sort of 1,000 or 2,000 years ago, the local villages were marrying each other, their children 
grew up, they married, you know, the girl next door, the boy next door. So, you know, you have this incredible distillation almost of the human genome that they're becoming flavored over hundreds of years by the fact that a lot of local people were marrying each other. Now, this doesn't mean that strangers didn't come into town and sweep people off their feet or that other people didn't leave as well. Just that enough people stayed in place for long enough, had children who had children who had children, who essentially tell us that, you know, a lot of people essentially stayed there for a long time. What this particular study also suggests is that, you know, when the Saxons swept in, when the Romans, sorry, the Romans left around, uh, I think it was 476 AD, they just essentially abandoned the Brits who they'd been living with for hundreds of years by that stage. And then all the Saxons and uh, various other groups swept in along the Western coast and, and essentially took over. There were no written records for a hundred or 200 years. And people have long speculated, you know, how many Saxons came in, what did they actually do to the locals? What happened to people during that time? What, what the DNA analysis suggests is that, you know, it wasn't that there were hundreds of boats and thousands of warriors uh, coming in and, and destroying the locals that actually there were potentially just a couple of small groups each year coming in, settling down, marrying a few of the locals so that today a lot of the modern British genome is flavoured both by that earlier indigenous group of Brits but also the Saxons who replaced the Romans. And I don't know if it was exactly the same study that you're talking about or a very similar one, um, but I was really struck in your book by the story of a particular problem that puzzled one of the geneticists that were working on on this data set. And, you know, he wondered about the fact that there was a group of individuals that seemed to share a lot of their DNA, but they were kind of living in a place where they shouldn't be. It was this kind of odd outlier group. Um, and, and eventually he figured out why that was. Can you tell us that story? Yes. Yes. That, that is such a great story. And what's so fun about that story is that, you know, it was initially this problem for their analysis. It was this strange outlier. It made absolutely no sense, but, but in the end, it became this wonderful proof of, um, of these interpretations that they come up with. So, so the researcher, um, Stephen Leslie, you know, when he completed his analysis, of all of Great Britain, you know, and his group had come up with these perhaps at least 20 different groups of slightly genetically different people. And it's, it's important to emphasize that, you know, of course, all these people are almost entirely exactly genetically the same and that these differences are extremely subtle and they probably have no impact whatsoever on people's health or traits or anything like that. But they're these tastes or, or flavors in the genome that tell us a little bit bit about the past. So, so what Leslie found was, um, once they'd sorted Great Britain out into all these neat little groups, that there was someone in Newcastle who looked like they shouldn't be in there. Genetically, they matched people from the Devon region, but, but they were way up in Newcastle as well. And it seemed that what that meant for, for them to be in Newcastle, it meant that they had had four grandparents who were also born in the area around Newcastle. So that didn't make much sense to him because what it might have meant if their DNA analysis was correct, that, that around the 1800s, eight different people from Devon moved up to Newcastle, 
that they had all paired up with each other and had children and that their children had married and had children and that these, these, these were the genomes that ended up in, in the experiment. This just seemed really implausible. I mean, if they were a religious group, if they were Catholics or if they were Jewish people, it might perhaps make sense that even if they'd all moved to another area, they would have continued to marry within their group. But there's nothing culturally particularly special about Devonians. Uh, no offense to Devonians. It's just that there was nothing binding them together. So Leslie ran and reran his analysis over and over again. It was absolutely driving him mad. And then what he did was he went on some genealogical websites and some family history sites, and he found that actually there was a really important historic connection between Devon and Newcastle. So they were both mining areas, and around the time that these people would have moved up, there were a number of strikes happening in Newcastle. People were striking for better wages and better treatment. And what the miners did or what the mining companies did is they took Devonians up to Newcastle to actually break the strike. These people were strike breakers. So they would have been really isolated from their new communities. People would not have wanted to talk with them, let alone to marry them and have children with them. So actually it made perfect sense that you might have eight individuals coming up from Devon into the Newcastle region and still only associating with each other for a couple of generations. Um, amazing use of genetic information. <laughs> yeah. And family history sites too. It really, it was that wonderful combination of this incredible, very 21st century genetic analysis with this old activity, you know, with this sort of, uh, you know, with this, with this middle-aged hobby that, you know, of tracking, tracking family through time. So now that we've talked a little bit about how what we know about genetics has affected us in many different ways. What do you see as some of the things that are still left in the future that we need to discover? And, and what, do you, what do you see as the maybe one or two most important changes that are going to come around in the next couple of decades as a result of this information? I think the most important change is it's going to become really clear really soon that to be citizens of the 21st century, we need to have basic genomic literacy. You know, for those of us who live in these wonderful democracies, we have this, you know, we get basic language skills, basic geography, basic science, um, basic math. You know, I think genomics has to be part of that as well. The, the D DNA is, you know, the base material out of which we're made. And when you think about it for a second, it's really odd that it's only now that we're starting to, to really understand it, to become acquainted in it, to get a sense of how it gets cut and shuffled throughout the many generations and how it can tell us about our individual selves and about the history of the world at the same time. I think that's the basic thing. I think elementary school children will hopefully have genomic educations within, you know, within five to 10 years. So yeah, we need we need to teach our children to code and to uh, learn how to use our genetic code in novel ways as well. Right. Maybe they'll be coding their genomes eventually too. Exactly. Exactly. So Christine Keneally, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks, Indre. It was great to talk to you. So that was fascinating. Uh, it's a topic I'm really interested in. I love the stories of using DNA to kind of tease out history, uh, both kind of more recent history and then more ancient history. Um, I'm used to it more in the ancient history. I hadn't heard that kind of recent history story that she told about the miners and stuff. That was fascinating. One thing I thought that was not really addressed, just wasn't part of what you guys were talking about, though, is that 
there hasn't been a huge change in medicine yet um, due to DNA research and due to genomics. She mentioned a little bit, you guys talked about it a little bit, but I think that's something that that still needs to be teased out and needs to be understood better by scientists because it hasn't had a huge impact on drug development or um, or medical treatment yet. I agree. I mean, there are a couple of cases in which it is being used, like the BRCA1 versus BRCA2 mutations in, in women with breast cancer. Absolutely. Um, so they're, you know, they, and, and they are rethinking cancer in terms of your, as opposed to where it used to be, you'd, you'd diagnose cancer depending on where it started. Now they're thinking we should diagnose cancer on the basis of the mutation. And right. So and they, kind of what it is as opposed to where it is. Exactly. So that's, that's a big fundamental change and that I think is starting at least to uh, be used in, in the cutting edge centers, maybe it hasn't trickle down all the way to um, all of medicine. Um, but I, I see that that's kind of the, the way the future is going to be. So it, it probably it'll start with cancer since cancer is fundamentally a genetic disease. I mean, it's about mutations. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think it, it eventually will permeate any disease that has any kind of genetic association or, or basis. I agree. I, I think that one issue with that that we have today, and hopefully that's going to continue to be solved or understood better by scientists. The issue we have is is what we can learn from genomic analyses is kind of about risk. It doesn't mean you will definitely get something. It doesn't mean you will definitely get diabetes or you will definitely get breast cancer or any of these questions. And and there are many um there are many returns in any genomic analysis somebody might have done that are unknown or or might be associated and scientists aren't quite sure what those mutations mean or how likely that means even though they know it's associated with a given disease they don't really understand just how likely that how likely it is then that you'll get that disease and so these kinds of questions are still really hard for patients to understand and they're hard for doctors to understand and communicate it about too and there aren't it's just not genomics hasn't infiltrated medicine enough and the information is still kind of it's it's not solid enough in in most realms to be able to make really solid decisions based on that. But I agree with you that this is kind of what's coming down the pike. It's really interesting too that um, you know you think about the power that doctors have. For example, people think that this new revolution in genetics is going to take some of that power away and put it into the hands of the patients, right? Now they're going to know more about their own specific individual DNA, etc. Um, and But if you compare it to the cost-benefit analysis that a doctor needs to make when considering uh, a prescription, for example, that will have side effects, that will have you know risks involved or any, any kind of procedure, really, um, the doctor still makes a lot of those decisions without informing the patient of every step of the way and without the training, you know, the patients really aren't equipped to make those decisions for themselves. That's why doctors go through years and years and years of medical school. So I wonder if, you know, we might have an initial boost in people bringing their genetic information to their physicians, but eventually then turning back and leaving it up to the physicians and that it's the physicians that are going to be getting better educated on how to use this information rather than the patients themselves using it to make decisions. Well, I like that you brought that up about physicians getting better educated, because actually something I reported on recently is the fact that it's still a huge issue that physicians themselves don't understand much about necessarily all the details about genomics and then how to interpret the results. And that's a barrier because there aren't enough genetic counselors in the US to kind of deal with all these questions. And that's even a lack in the field. So actually, I spoke to folks at the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. It's kind of a mouthful. Um, I was talking to them about this very issue of physicians 
needing to um, get better educated or down the line how physicians will need to be better educated about genomics because they will be that front line to help patients understand this. Yeah, I mean, I, I was really surprised. I, I had a genetic counselor talk to me when I was pregnant about the results of some genetic testing that we had done. And, you know, sh- she had a master's degree, and I really felt like she really didn't have that much more training than I did. And it just seemed to me amazing that this person was considered the expert. And, you know, anyway, so I, I hope that changes. I hope that there there are is a, is a bigger push towards, you know, really understanding what fundamentally this information means to the average patient. I agree. So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you, Cynthia, for joining us as a guest host once again this week. It was great fun. And to our listeners for listening to this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, cookie recipes just in time for the holidays, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Once again, this episode was sponsored by Bombas. Bombas are athletic leisure socks, re-engineered to look better, feel better, and perform better with a mission to help those in need. Socks are the number one most requested clothing item at homeless shelters. So if you're donating food to homeless shelters, also consider that Bombas was founded to help solve that problem. One pair purchased means one pair donated. Bombas has donated more than 150,000 pairs of socks to those in need since launching in October of 2013. Bombas are purpose-built for athletes and engineered for extreme comfort. So go to bombas.com slash minds. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash minds. Use promo code minds and you'll get 10% off your order. And this episode was sponsored by Mailroot, the leading cloud service for email protection since 1997. Mailroot doesn't think you should waste your time and resources by accepting a bunch of garbage on your mail server. With Mailroot, there's no hardware or software to install or maintain. Mailroot simply receives your mail, sorts it, and delivers only clean email to your mail server. To remove spam from your life for good, go to mailroot.net slash minds for a free trial and 10% off for the lifetime of your account. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, The Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.